Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. We're beginning a new section in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. We will look at this first controversial healing on the Sabbath day that Jesus did. There will be another in the Gospel of John. This is the first of Jesus' controversial healings on the Sabbath day. So John chapter 5, verses 1-18, through 18, and as you turn there, let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank You for giving us Your Word. Thank You for using it as a means of grace to bless our hearts. We ask now, for Your blessing by Your Spirit. Minister to us as we hear the reading and preaching of Your Word. Strengthen me as Your minister to be faithful to Your Word. Help me to fear You more than I fear man. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the Word of the Lord from John chapter 5, verses 1-18. through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man, said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. May God bless the reading of His Holy Word and let His church say, Amen. Amen. On February 11th, 1858, a young woman by the name of Bernadette who lived in Lourdes, France. And for those of you French experts, you can tell me how to pronounce Lourdes correctly after church. I hope I'm saying that right. In Lourdes, France, 
Bernadette, this young woman, claimed to see an apparition of what she described to be the Blessed Virgin Mary near a grotto, which is a picturesque cave. And over the course of that year, from February to July 16th, Bernadette claimed 18 supposed apparitions of the Virgin Mary who would come back to the grotto, Bernadette would, by candlelight, follow the instructions she claimed to received by this apparition. Bernadette drank water from the cave. She ate bitter herbs that she found in the cave. She prayed secret prayers she was told to pray. She even kissed the ground as she said she was instructed to do. All works she was told of penance for guilty, vile sinners. Those who lived in Lourdes and the priests in the area were drawn to the grotto. They were drawn to the cave to see such a sight. And on March 1st, 1858, it was reported that a woman with a dislocated arm was supernaturally, unexplainedly healed when she stuck her arm into the holy water. Today, and please don't do, do this during my sermon, okay? If you Google Lourdes, France, you'll, you'll find that this site that the Roman Catholic Church calls holy is still operating today. Thousands of Roman, Catholic, Roman Catholics make pilgrimage to Lourdes, which is in the south of France, near the border of Spain. There at the grotto, in a hole in the grotto, a hole in the rock, there is a statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary where Bernadette claimed to see these apparitions most of the time. Pilgrims can attend a mass that's held outside at the grotto. They can walk through the cave. They can kiss and touch the holy rock walls and floor of the cave. They can even drink the water flowing from the cave and also be baptized in the water that comes from this cave. And since the apparitions, it has been claimed that more than 7,000 people have had unexplained cures while visiting Lourdes, France. And if you are one of the lucky few to have one of these unexplained cures, you can go right next door there to the medical bureau of the sanctuary to have your miracle verified and put into the books. All of you are wondering, what on earth is this sermon about right now? When Adam and Eve sinned, they plunged all of humanity into what the Westminster divines called an estate of sin and misery. Each and every one of us, we experience that estate of sin and misery every day. We wrestle with the indwelling corruption of sin that remains in our hearts. Not only do we wrestle with sin, but there is also 
the sin problem out in the world. We see famine and sickness and disease and plagues. Some of you woke up with anky, achy joints and bones this morning. A, a reminder to you that sin is in this world and that we've been plunged into in a state of sin and misery. The Shorter Catechism, question 19, asks the question, what is the misery of that estate wherein two man fell? All mankind by their fall lost communion with God. That we feel that broken communion with God each and every day as we long to be in communion with Him. We are under His wrath and curse and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and the pains of hell forever. That's our plight if we are outside of Christ. We are under the miseries of this life. That all of humanity has been plunged into this sinful estate. We long for fellowship with God, so we fill that void in our heart with idols. And our idols that we manufacture are cruel taskmasters, leaving us miserably separated from God, haunted by the guilt of our sins. When you consider this estate of sin and misery and how desperately we long for redemption, it becomes easier to understand how millions of people can be deceived by a place like Lord's France. People who are desirous, desperate for supernatural experience. Desperate for relief from the estate of sin and misery that they live in. We long for a way to unburden ourselves of this estate of sin and misery. As we consider John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18, we read about a man who is doubly burdened by the estate of sin and misery that he lived in. He's doubly burdened. How? Well, not only is he an invalid, not only is he lame and probably a beggar, but he is also a wretched sinner in need of grace and forgiveness from Jesus. And his encounter with Jesus is a lesson for us all to rest in Jesus, to rest in the Savior and not in our own works. That's the encouragement from this passage of Scripture. To rest in the Savior, not in your works. So how does humanity try to repair the miseries of this estate of sin that we live in this life? Well, we're going to see two ways that humanity tries to repair the miseries of this estate of sin. Let's look at this passage together. Some people, number one, some people work to repair the miseries of sin with supernaturalism. Some people work to repair the miseries of sin with supernaturalism, or you might say mysticism. This lame man here that Jesus encounters is desperate in his life. He is doubly in need of a miracle. Not only is he in a wretched physical estate, but his condition is even worse when you consider the estate of his own heart. That he's a wretched sinner in need of God's grace 
and forgiveness. Desperation has led this man to this place, to this pool that we read about here in John chapter 5. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus was in Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. And this is the feast cycle that we will read about and be studying here that goes up through, I believe, chapter 10, where Jesus is doing miracles associated with the feast of the Jews. And the description of the feast informs the miracle that Jesus does. Let me give you an example of something that's upcoming. Jesus feeds the 5,000 people. And then He says, I am the bread of life. And He does this during Passover. Right? So what Jesus is doing is He's letting everyone know the Passover is about Me. I'm the bread from heaven. My life is the one that sustains you. But notice here, this miracle that Jesus does is at a feast. But what feast was it? We have no idea. We're not told. The Apostle John doesn't tell us what feast this is. Bookmark that. We'll come back to it. But that's an important detail in the text. Jesus is here in Jerusalem. He's for a feast. And He goes to a pool just outside of the temple complex called the Sheepgate Pool. Or an Aramaic called the Pool of Bethesda. And it has five roofed colonnades. So you can imagine this picturesque place in Jerusalem, the temple that's there, worshipers going in and out of the temple, and just outside the temple is this uh, open-air porch, you might say, with a beautiful pool there, a five-roof colonnade. So beautiful columns and this picturesque place, and you hear the sound of worshipers going in and out of the temple, and you see the priests going in and out of the temple, and here is Jesus, and He's at Jerusalem, uh, and He's there for a feast, and He visits this pool. And what does Jesus see when He gets to the pool? What's described for us at this beautiful pool? Verse 3, a multitude of sick, destitute people, a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So just imagine the scene. Here's this beautiful, picturesque place and all the crowds have gathered into Jerusalem for a feast just outside the temple. And here's this pool. And Jesus goes there and it's occupied by a huge crowd of sick people. Well, what were they doing there? Well, they're waiting for a miracle. Your Bible, if you're reading from English Standard Version, did you notice that you're probably missing a verse? <laughs> Karen says, oh. Scripture goes, the, verse, the translation goes from verse 3 to verse 5. If you're reading from an older King James Version, you probably have verse 4 that's there. And if you're reading a more modern translation, there's probably a footnote there in your Bible, like my own ESV has there of verse 4. What does the footnote say? Verse 4 in the footnote reads, An angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever diseases he had. Now, modern day textual criticism, you can read Bruce Metzger's work. If you go back and look, 
the oldest manuscripts of the Gospel of John do not contain this verse. Those of you who are in seminary right now, it's papyrus number 66. And all of you have no idea what that means, but Travis and Jonathan and Tim, but just Google after the sermon papyrus number 66. It's one of the oldest existing papyrus manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of John, and, and verse 4 is not there in the Gospel of John. And as they go and they went and they study the subsequent manuscripts after that, when they find this verse in later manuscripts, what the scribes did was they put an asterisk next to this, per, this verse called an, an obili mark. And it was an indication by the scribe that what they were including here was spurious. It was added to the text. You say, well, why on earth would they do that? Because this pool in Jerusalem was known, there was common folklore in and around Jerusalem that this was not just any sort of pool, this was, we might call it, a magic pool. This was a pool where God would send an angel down on occasion and stir up the pool, and if you were a sick invalid, you could rush into the pool and you would be healed of your ailment. This man is so desperate for a miracle, he has bought into the folklore of his day. He is there at the pool, waiting, hoping, Longing for a supernatural miracle. Notice the length of time that he's been there. He's been an invalid for 38 years, verse 5 tells us. And Jesus, he sees him lying there. Verse 6 says he had already been there a long time. So you get the idea that somehow this man is getting to this pool. Most especially, we think, during festival times. And Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? And the man says, uh, yeah, it's the whole reason I'm here. I'm waiting for the angel to come down and stir up this pool. But the problem is, the man says, every time the water begins to move, and you can imagine the rush of, the rush of people down to the pool, the man is lame. And he says, every time the water stirred up, someone else gets in before me. I'm... I'm not able to get down into the pool first. Jesus says to him in verse 8, Get up, take up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. One of the ways that we try to repair the miseries of sin that we experience is through supernaturalism. You know, for a culture that prides itself on being so scientifically advanced, we sure are a culture that loves mysticism and supernaturalism, aren't we? Let me give you some examples. Mediums. Those who claim they can communicate with the dead. Have you ever heard of a reality TV show called Long Island Medium? Wouldn't be on TV if people didn't watch it. People who read horoscopes, tarot cards, books like The Secret, the Enneagram personality test that has its origins in this satanic occult, 
Aaron Rodgers, the NFL quarterback, recently came out on the news that he went off, I think, to the Amazon with a shaman and took the DMT drug known as, what is it called, ayahuasca? Had hallucinations for a period of time. It was a supernatural experience, he described. Uh, Our family has a friend who is born with a, a spinal disease that causes him a lot of pain, and I've Heard him talk about going to a Benny Hinn crusade so that he could have an opportunity to get close to the stage and have a chance encounter with Benny Hinn so that he can be touched and healed of his infirmities. We are a culture that is obsessed with supernaturalism and mysticism. Even people who do not claim to be Christians, even people who, it just amazes me. How prevalent this is in music and film and reality TV and news and how many celebrities and and different people get into all this stuff. Why do they do that? Do that because they're desperate. They're desperate to relieve pain of sin. They're desperate to experience relief from their sin in some way, shape, or form. Now, I know what you're thinking. Now, Pastor, hold on just a minute. What do you do with all these reports of healings that come out of all these places? I mean, Lord's France, 7,000 supernatural healings. I mean, what do you, well, how do you answer that, Pastor? Didn't you come out of the Pentecostal church? What about all the crusades that claim to have healings at those meetings? What do you do with all that? B. Warfield, in his book, Counterfeit Miracles, gives us a few considerations. It's a remarkable book written by a world-class scholar at his time. First, B.B. Warfield says that oftentimes the reports of these miracles, visitations, apparitions are inconsistently reported and untrustworthy. B.B. Warfield even goes back into the patristic medieval period and examines the reports of all these extraordinary miracles that have been done, and he concludes they're inconsistently reported and the reports are not trustworthy. Second, he compares these reports with the miracles of the Bible, and here's what he concludes, that the miracles of the Bible have a majestic characteristic he says. What he means by that is they, they give glory to God. They give glory to Jesus. They, they emphasize the gracious work of Almighty God. While many of those reported outside of Scripture are romanticized and read like epics, Warfield says. Third, he says these spurious reports, especially the, the visions and apparitions, They don't ever take into account the possibility of psychosomatic responses or hallucinations. Do you ever think about that? Maybe the person claiming to see the Blessed Virgin Mary was seeing something in their own mind and hallucinating. Maybe the person who claimed that their arm felt better by sticking it into a pool, maybe they had a psychosomatic response in that religious experience. Fifthly, Warfield argues that modern-day miracles would serve no purpose, he says. Why is that? Because in the Bible, they functioned as signs of divine messengers 
and the revelation that they carried. We've talked a lot about signs in the Gospel of John, haven't we? The miracles of Jesus, they're not called miracles, are they? What are they called? They're called signs. Why are they called signs? Because they're evidence of who Jesus is. It's one thing for Jesus to claim to be the Son of God. It's another thing for Jesus to tell an invalid who's been lame for 38 years to take up his mat and walk. The signs authenticate the messenger and the revelation they carry. Lastly, Warfield argues that these supposed supernatural experiences are really what we would call an overrealized eschatology. It's not taking into account that the promises of healing, the blessed promise of hope that we all have of a glorified body one day, is a promise that awaits for us in the future. Every single person that Jesus healed in the Scriptures, including Lazarus whom He raised from the dead, you know what happened to those people? What happened to them? They died. And so the miracle that they received, the healing that they received, even Lazarus who was raised from the dead, even that miracle itself, as extraordinary as that is, was but a foretaste of the great miracle we will all receive one day when Jesus returns and we receive a glorified body and enjoy the presence of God for all eternity. If you have a longing in your heart for supernaturalism, if you have a longing in your heart where you find yourself reading horoscopes, consulting mediums, praying and asking God for some sort of mystical experience, let me just caution you. Rest in the Savior. Rest in the Savior. Put your faith and trust in the Savior and the completed work of Jesus Christ and the revelation that God has given. Put your faith and trust and rest in Him. Not in your own works. Not in even your own faith. Look to Him and rest in Him. There's a second way that we see in this passage that people work to repair the miseries of sin. Some work to repair the miseries of sin with supernaturalism, but others work to repair the miseries of sin using legalism. Legalism. Here we get at the heart of the matter of this passage of Scripture. When did Jesus do this miracle? Well, He did it during a feast of the Jews. What feast of the Jews was it? We have no idea. Well, when did He do the miracle? Well, John tells us in verse 9. What does it say there? In the second part of verse 9, what day did Jesus heal this man? He healed him on the Sabbath day, John tells us. Well, what was the response that Jesus had for healing this man on the Sabbath day? Well, the Jews, this is a reference to the Jewish leaders, verse 10, they see the man, they see the man who had been healed, he's carrying his, his mat, he's walking, and what do they say to him? Do they say, how marvelous that you've been healed. Tell us how this happened. No, what do they tell him? Look there at verse 10. It's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. That's nice that you've been healed. That's nice that after 38 years you can finally walk, but 
We just want to let you know you're violating the Sabbath day. You are not permitted to take up your bed and walk. But he answered him, look at the man's, this is probably the man's excuse. This man is not painted in a good light, I don't think, in John 5. Look at what he says. Look at his excuse. Well, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Well, I'm just doing this because some guy who healed me told me to do it. That's why I'm carrying my mat and breaking the Sabbath day. Well, they ask him, who's the man? Who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? They're, they're more concerned about him breaking the Sabbath day. They're more concerned about the man who told him to carry his mat than they are about who healed him and how he was healed. They don't inquire into any of that. What they want to know is, why are you violating our Sabbath day laws? And who told you you could do it? Now the man who had been healed, look at verse 13. The man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in place. Did the man violate the Sabbath day? No, he did not violate the Sabbath day. But the Jewish leaders probably had a text like Jeremiah 17 in mind. Jeremiah 17, 21-22. Is that your sermon tonight, Travis? Jeremiah 17? Okay, I'm only preaching half of Travis' sermon for him then. They probably had in mind a verse like Jeremiah 17. Thus says the Lord, Take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day nor or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. If you have a piece of property and you have a piece of land and people are beginning to trespass on it, what will you probably do with that piece of land? You'll build a fence around it. You'll put in gates, you'll put in locks, you'll put in surveillance to make sure that people do not trespass onto your property. When you read the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament prophets make it clear that the reason the Jews went into exile was because of their sin. They trespassed and violated God's law. So when they came back from exile, guess what the Jewish leaders did? Same thing that you and I do with a piece of land when people trespass on our land. They built a fence around the law. They added all these extra restrictions against the law to keep people far away from even coming close to violating the law. So they're upset at this man and at Jesus. Why? Someone climbed over their fence. And they were trespassing the law. Isn't it interesting that the supposed claims of holy living in legalistic fundamentalism never really addresses the sin issue of the heart, does it? You know what legalism produces? Legalism produces pride in the person who thinks they're keeping the law well. Or despair in the person who is unable to keep it. When you try to address the problem with sin... You only make a worse, when you try to address the problem of sin with legalism, you only make a worse sinner. 
For you will either fill that person's heart with pride, thinking that they have obtained merit with God, or you will fill that person's heart with despair, thinking there is no way possible they'll ever live up to that standard and God must hate them. This is one of the reasons Jesus did this miracle on the Sabbath day was to reveal the sinfulness of their legalism. That their legalistic rule-keeping won't change anyone's heart. Only a touch from the Master's hand will make a sinner clean. It's an invitation to rest in the Savior and not in your works. To rest and delight in the true meaning of the Sabbath day. So let's talk about that for a minute. If we can't repair the estate of sin and misery by supernaturalism or legalism, what do we do? What work must we do to repair all the sin that's in the world? Nothing. Well, what do you mean nothing? Well, you must rest in Christ. You have to rest in Christ. You see, Jesus is the one who works to restore the effects of sin in the world. Jesus is the one who is at work recreating all the death and destruction that sin has caused. Look at what Jesus describes here in this passage of Scripture. Jesus finds the man, verse 14, He finds the man, what's He tell him? See you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So the healing was just a sign for the man of a greater promise and hope that his sins needed to be forgiven. The man, what does he do? Does he fall down at Jesus' feet and worship Him? Does he confess faith and say, you are the Christ? Like, like the Samaritan woman at the well, you are the Messiah? Does he do that? No, what does he do? Look at verse 15. He went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. Hey, you know that guy who healed me? I know who it is. It's that guy over there. So go get him. What do they, what do, they do? Well, John tells us this is the reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Verse 16 tells us that. They were persecuting Jesus for this. And look at verse 18. Not only were they persecuting Jesus because of this, they were seeking to kill Jesus because of this. Because of what? Because Jesus is the one sent by the Father to restore all that the Sabbath day represented. Think about Genesis chapter 2, Exodus chapter 20. The model in place, the, the, the framework in place throughout the Old Testament was work six days, rest on the seventh. Go read Genesis 1 and 2. God created all the universe in six days and He rested on the seventh. Go read Exodus chapter 20 on the fourth commandment. The Israelites are told, six days you shall do your labor and on the seventh day you shall rest. For it's a Sabbath day. Why? They're following the model that God established for them in creation. At creation. But when Jesus comes, He flips the order, doesn't He? 
You say, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Well, Jesus. He's the firstborn of all creation, isn't He? John chapter 1 explains to us that not only is this Jesus the Messiah, but He's the eternal Son of God. He is the one through whom all creation was made. was made for Him. And He's the one who reveals the glory of the Father. He's the one, he's, he's the one who comes in tabernacles with God's people. He's the one who reveals light in darkness and life to death. And those who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, they're known as Nicodemus needed to hear. They are known as what? Those who have been born again. And so what Jesus tells these Jewish leaders here in verse 17, my father is working until now. Six days, the father's been working. He rests on the seventh day. And so you observe the Sabbath day on the seventh day. But now, what's Jesus say? I'm working. I am the one who is here to restore all that sin and death and corruption have caused in the world. I am the one who is recreating the world, you might say. You see, on the Jewish Sabbath, people rested to enjoy God's work of creation. But on the Christian Sabbath, we rest to enjoy Jesus' work of recreation and salvation. On the Jewish Sabbath, the Old Testament saints worship God as the sovereign Creator. On the Christian Sabbath, New Testament saints worship God as a sovereign Savior. On the Jewish Sabbath, the Old Testament saints rested in God's providence for their physical needs, just like the Israelites received manna and the bread from heaven. On the Christian Sabbath, the New Testament saints rest in God's providence for what? Spiritual needs. Every Christian Sabbath, we are setting apart the day to recognize that grace always precedes work. Grace always precedes work. For Sunday is not the last day of the week. It is what? The first day of the week. You say, well, how do we know that's true? Well, because Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation and He was resurrected on the first day of the week. What Jesus is saying here is that we must rest in His work to restore sin. We can't look to our own works that might conjure up a supernatural mystical experience. We can't look to our own works to merit God's grace and forgiveness through legalism. We must be like that lame man at the pool. We must lie there and do nothing and rest in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Grace always precedes work. And once you've experienced that work of grace, then the Savior can look upon you and say, go and sin no more. Rest and take confidence in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. It challenges us to receive by grace the mercy of Jesus Christ. That is so contrary 
to what's in our hearts. For in our hearts, we think we can merit somehow your mercy, your love, your grace. But we know that this is an undeserved gift by your mercy. Lord, I pray that you would instill within our hearts a great delight for the Christian Sabbath day. That we would recognize it as a sign to us that we cannot earn our salvation or cause any true spiritual change in our sinful world, but we we must rest in Your perfect grace. We ask that You will write this truth upon our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen.